0: Welcome to Episode 7 of the Busy Aviation Podcast. On the show today, I have a really interesting guest who is an accomplished aviator, but also a teacher, author and presenter. Peter Docker, or Group Captain Peter Docker, as he's known by his more formal title, teaches leadership that is focused on commitment and human connection. His book, Leading from the Jump Seat, has recently been published, and it's a privilege to chat with him here today. Hi, Peter. Welcome to the Busy Aviation podcast. Really great to have you on. A slightly more unusual guest, really, for the so far for our podcast, uh, in that uh, I was approached by your publicist uh, to read your book, and it's been fascinating so far. But to get started, I think, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your career so far, and intended route, and your passions as well?
1: Sure. Well, Chris, first of all, thanks so much for having me on your show. It's great to have the opportunity to talk. And uh, yes, my publicist did contact you, but this is more about having a conversation about things that, uh, well, where I think we share a passion. But in order to answer your question, I I go back, good heavens, um, longer than I care to remember now. I started in the Royal Air Force, a bit like you, I think. Uh, I joined uh, the age of about 20 as a pilot, and spent 25 years in the Royal Air Force. Uh, I was promoted to Group Captain eventually. But during my time, uh, yes, I flew VC-10, uh, the good old VC-10 aircraft. while well, the well, fastest been, around. Been in the back of what? those a few times. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But uh, I trust the old beast. So, flew that in the transport passenger and later on the air refuelling role, which was exciting. And during my time, I flew the Prime Minister who at the time was Margaret Thatcher. So I was one of her pilots. And also later on in my career, uh, I led people in combat in the 2003 Iraq war. I was the force commander for the British air refueling operation. Um, but then, you know, in the Air Force, you get to the stage where you're, you're promoted and you no longer are flying. You're looking after the people that fly. And I did a number of different roles. I taught at the Defense uh, Academy on leadership. Um, I negotiated with the Russians when the Berlin Wall came down on behalf of NATO. I I led a £13 billion project, which was the biggest at the time. Um, That involved A330 aircraft, which I learned to fly, which was a great experience. And then I I left the Air Force because I I thought there was more I could do. And I joined a consultancy that focused in high-risk environments working in oil and gas, construction, mining, where people often got killed or injured. And so we went in and we helped people to um, work in a way, lead in a way, where everyone went home safe every day. And that was a wonderful experience. I worked in the Middle East, in Kazakhstan, in Africa uh, and Europe. And then after about three years, I thought, right, there's more I can do. And around about that time, there was a fellow called Simon Sinek who brought out a book called um, well, Start With Why, was his first yep. one.
0: Very well and, known.
1: Uh, I, I worked alongside Simon for about seven or eight years, helping to take his message around the world. Uh, I co-wrote with Simon and David Mead the book Find Your Why, um, which to date has sold about half a million copies, I think, in 26 languages. And in the process, I visited in total of my life about 93 countries. And worked in practically every, well, every industry you can imagine, including aviation, including space, which is fascinating, and travelled to um, well, those countries and two hundred odd cities. So it's been an extraordinary time. In the last couple of years, I stepped away from Simon and focused on pulling together everything I've learned in my different careers um, to put in the book, "Leading from the Jump Seats," a copy of which you have in your hand, I think. Yeah. So that- that's.
0: Yeah, and we were just, before we started to hit the record button, we were just talking about that, about the book, uh, and I, I have to admit that I'm, I'm probably, well, 95% of the way through it, and uh, it was something we'll talk about a little bit later on, I think, but it's an excellent sure. book, um, you. and uh, you've got a fascinating background, uh, and I, as you said right at the start, uh, you, so we have similar backgrounds, so I think yours has been a little bit more exciting and varied than mine, uh, but uh, my my 18 years in the Air Force... But uh, yeah, it's really great to have you here. And it's really interesting to get that summary of where you've been. And, and then I suppose if we looked at that in detail, we could probably talk for days. But uh, we haven't got time for that, unfortunately. You, you mentioned joining the Air Force and back in those, back in those days and you flew the VC-10. Yeah. And I've, in the book, you've, you've mentioned that you did it. Your passion was really to help people. You thought it would, you know, you could join the Air Force to absolutely yeah. help other people, which... You know, a lot of people do, uh, and yeah. it's it's admirable. But did you ever have any specific passion for flying? Was there was there something, a moment in your life, we you thought, I really need to fly?
1: Well, my introduction to flying really was when I was at university, and I joined the university Esquadron, Birmingham University Squadron. and uh, I was fortunate enough to learn to fly the Bulldog then, and to this day, I can still remember. Coming across the railway line embankment, which is on the approach to Cosford Airfield, where we operated from, and I think I was a little bit low, and the train just hesitated before it pulled out the station. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that was a wonderful experience. But to your point, I, I was driven actually to to join the Air Force uh, in 1982, which is you know thousands of years ago. It feels like. Um, Because at that time, the the Falkland Islands was invaded by Argentina. And I remember it was nothing to do with the politics. I was just so incensed that uh, a regime was enforcing their will on a population that had no choice but considered themselves very much British, um, that I left university halfway through and uh, chose to join the Royal Air Force full time because I felt I would then be part of a team who in the future could help those who couldn't help themselves. And well, I'd learned to fly and that was really enjoyable. So I thought, well, let's do that. And so I left university halfway through my course, in fact, and joined the Royal Air Force because I wanted to be a part of a team who I felt could intervene in future situations and help those who couldn't help themselves. And so joining the Royal Air Force, obviously, the natural thing to do was to join as a pilot. Um, and I was fortunate that the Air Force offered me the opportunity to do that. And it's only looking back now where I think, well, I think I fully appreciate how fortunate I was to get that training.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm the same. And I think it all comes in such a rush. And I think the whole kind of... Arm forces career is so intense. Yep. It's only when you look back, I think, as well. You do look back a little bit with rose tinted spectacles. Certainly, Absolutely. I do. I, I've, I've certainly, I certainly seem to have forgotten all the uh, all the hard times, and uh, I've started to think about more all the all the, the all the really good times. I I I, I, I look back with uh, affection, particularly to the Nimrod. But I've forgotten those fifteen-hour trips where you just wanted to get (laughs) off. Uh, I've totally forgotten those. But I have to remind myself now and then when I when I when I get all nostalgic and my two boys are are very keen aviators as well. And uh, yeah, and I start talking about it, and I think they go, Dad, it's 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 you know why why did you ever leave Nimrod? It sounds awesome. And I said, Well, there were sounds
1: awesome. Yeah and the only aircraft in my knowledge that um, chose to shut down two engines was low level over the sea you yep. know uh what what a what a great scheme that was yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was was quite interesting but it was all well controlled <laughs> <Of course. laughs> yeah no good good stuff and, and so yeah th- that's the, the passion for flying and and do you still have that do you do you manage to fly at all now or is that a, a distant memory well
1: interesting question because it's something that I, it sounds odd to say this, but I'm wrestling with it at the moment. So when I, I left the Air Force uh, back in 2007, uh, to be honest, Chris, I wasn't in great shape mentally. Um, the toll of taking 200 people or so to, to war, um, and thankfully bring them all back. But that, that, that rested heavily on me and took quite a toll. It was less about what happened. It was more about what could have happened. And I, I took that responsibility really very, very heavily. Um, and so when I left the Air Force, I went into uh, the, the consulting. It had nothing to do with uh, the military or, or flying, uh, which surprised many, particularly since I had a, a nice, brand new, shiny A330 ticket. Um, you know, uh, I feel hard to be dirty, I, I yeah, wasted I that handy. in some ways. But <laughs> no, I. I think there was also it got the stage flying the VC-10, bless it. It was built like a brick outhouse, you know, to be polite about it, uh, which I was very thankful for on occasion. But towards the end of my flying career in in that aircraft, it was a case of what emergency we're going to have today. So um, perhaps it was yeah. the onset of reality that started to kick in. But so I left flying. I hung up my flying gloves. But there has always been something that that pulls me back in that direction. And last weekend, my daughter, who is grown up, you know, she's 30, um, for a birthday treat, we took her down to Gloucester Airfield Airport. And uh, she had a, a flight for 40 minutes or so with the instructor and i watched her from the the coffee shop as they tacked it out in this little light single prop aircraft and it was going through my head you know the radio calls that you make and your considerations on on takeoff for uh, engine failure etc um just because i remember it so well mm.
0: slightly less so, complicated yeah. an engine failure in a light piston of course no. than an engine failure probably in a vc10 there there, there is only one choice <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, indeed, it, it, it simplifies things, doesn't it? Yeah, but, in some respects. <laughs> uh, yeah. in, in some respects, yes. But uh, yeah, so we'll we'll see. I I think, and you might be able to appreciate this, Chris. When I was flying, I took great pride in flying to the best of my ability all of the time, and there's also always a purpose to it. And I I think the the cost of of maintaining any sort of licensed privately is so large that's one thing that holds you back but also i have to find a really good purpose yeah absolutely <laughs> rather than just talking about that, that's I, I think that's that's the challenge yeah. so we'll see oh good we'll, yeah, we'll yeah. I, mean, I, my... I
0: went back to flying fixed wing because uh, i've always had a fixed wing license uh, and i went back to it uh about it must be about four years ago now um yeah. uh, for the same reasons i i needed a purpose to it though and I absolutely love it, yeah. and it has rekindled all those early days of flying around in Cessnas and stuff like that for me. Um, I wasn't fortunate enough yeah. to do uh, the University Air Squadron, but uh, i have now have my own little aircraft, And but I like going places. That's the purpose. The purpose yeah. is, is, and it's quite fast, it's aerobatic, and, and it's it's not hugely it. easy to fly. So every time you go flying, it's a challenge. But I know what you mean. Flying around in circles does not hold much interest. No, and, and it is and, and but, one of the things you've just pointed out there it is phenomenally expensive everything <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean it's like i i compare it to having my wife used to have horses or a horse which was like a financial black hole you just used to throw money at it every day
1: would, yeah. yeah and and, and they're I, very
0: similar aircraft uh, mine I, I convinced myself that uh, uh it's more economic to have your own than and rather than booking somebody else's, but that's just really, really not true.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that. That, that was a good conversation you had with yourself in the mirror. I, <laughs> I, I, my, I,
0: I've got a very I, good I, spreadsheet.
1: Um, <laughs> well, I, I'm sure. Yeah, it, it's man maths, isn't it? But uh, I, I've effectively had, hung up my flying glass now, but handed it over to my son, who is a Royal Navy pilot. Oh, now interesting. And, um, He's been training for for many years, helicopters. And I have to say with unabashed pride that in May, I'll be going down to see him awarded his wings. Oh, awesome. Which is at a much later stage, as you go to an operational squadron uh, and you're operationally ready, that's when you get your wings, which is a much later stage than when I received mine, when I went through training. But that that will be a great, great moment. And uh, you and he could have great conversations about, helicopters and patting your head and stirring your stomach at the same time so uh,
0: yeah I, um, I think like yeah. you said about hanging out your flying gloves for me you know I've been involved with helicopters now for so long I, it, I don't have I have to say I don't have a massive passion for them I still have a massive passion for flying and all things aviation but helicopters uh yeah I, I still I still enjoy it but uh, it's not it's not something I have a huge passion for. So it's because I've done it as a job for so long, as you, as you said, and I, as yeah, well. That's... I've got to an age. I've got to an age where you know we're, we're pretty much in the aircraft we fly, uh, systems managers. You know, it's it's very very automated. I mean, compared to something like a VC-10, there's no comparison, and we're very much push. Yeah. Even in a helicopter these days, very much push button, and and you are there waiting for something to go wrong, uh, which fortunately doesn't yeah. happen very often. But that yeah. is. That's that's the reality of modern flying, you know, in, in the commercial world.
1: Well, it is, isn't it? Um, and it, it, it's nice to acquire the skills where you feel confident and capable of handling the situation when the automatics fall over. Um, because, of course, they sometimes can. Yeah. I, I I live vicariously, which is a big word for me, but uh, I live through my, my son's experience when... He went and did some of his training with the U.S. Army uh, over at Fort Rucker in Alabama. And whereas the the military in this country, you know, training helicopters, you'll get one or two aircraft taken off in the morning. Each morning they had 300 aircraft get airborne. Unbelievable. In three ways, 100. It was absolutely ridiculous. And some of the flying they did um was ultra low level at night on mvgs between i think you did between naught and 20 feet was um you know the, yeah. their height um and that that i think must have been quite quite exciting yeah so, Done that. Uh, don't yeah. need to go yeah. back
0: to it thanks <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, perhaps it's better people much younger than you and i chris 100 percent A- it is yeah <laughs>
0: I have total admiration for people that, that, you know, my age and and I know the Air Force now as well as there's lots of, you know, there's lots of older pilots in there when, you know, I think probably when we were in, you know, 55, even if you stayed in a flying post for all that time, you were you were gone. Uh, And I know now of of people that have gone way past 55 and they're still flying on operational squadrons and uh, hats off hats off to them, I say, (laughs) I really do.
1: And uh, no, I, I think that is a sign of the times as well that uh, there is a shortage um, uh, of of pilots, and uh, the, the training system can't seem to to push them out to the operational units quickly yeah. enough. So, uh, yeah, that is that probably bodes well for people who are a little bit older and want to stay flying.
0: <laughs> yes, there's my uh, my I'm in mean, the other end of the spectrum. My youngest son uh, is actually just applying to be a Royal Navy pilot, uh, and is some way through oh, the yes. process. So that's quite interesting, but. Uh, he shows me lots of memes from the uh, from the internet of uh, particularly the RAF P8 crews, which obviously I've got a little bit of a connection with, and uh, it's quite scary when I see people that I was on the squadron with in, in 1986 and and they're still there <laughs> and they've come back, uh, which is well, yeah. Good on them. Uh, so there's um, quite lots of memes I think uh, going around of uh, about uh, the age of the P8 crews. Uh, but but very uh, experienced crews, you know. Um, so and I'm sure they'll do. a If they were anything like the Nimrod crews, they'll do an awesome job um, because there was no oh, doubt we were lunch. the best of the world at it uh, back then. And I hope we haven't lost that. And now it's come back. That's really great. Thanks, Peter. Uh, um, we, we you talked a little bit about the the VC ten there. I've, I've I've flown. I don't know if have flown on the flight deck, uh, but I've, I've certainly flown backwards. Uh, in the passenger variant, as for anyone that's listening, the VC-10 had uh, all the seats facing backwards as a, as a actually a, a very good safety idea, uh, okay. and, and well, only not adopted by the airlines is because passengers don't want to fly backwards. Um, well, indeed. Yeah, but uh, but it's a, it, a a fantastic aircraft, um, the fastest airliner in the world.
1: Second um, secondly is Concourse.
0: Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, got, it, yeah, I suppose I should leave Concord out, really, So it's got afterburners. I don't it, think
1: you, it, that do not count, does it? <laughs> no, it, would be, it, it was faster by some margin, uh, one could say. But no, the, the vt Sam was a, a, a quick old bird. You know, we used to cruise around at, uh, from memory, Mac 8 8.2, 0.82. Um, but I, th- I think it was 0.966 was its uh, maximum um, Mac operating. Uh, or 992, one of those. But I have actually gone supersonic in the VC-10. Not intentionally, but we're flying um, uh, over in the States at night, which added to the drama. And we're up at uh, about 33,000 feet. And I think we're around about the Rockies region. So there was obviously some topographical action going on. And we found ourselves picked up by a standing wave. And um, it was, to be honest, rather alarming because our speed went from our nice steady Mach 0.82 down to about 0.6 and then up to one point something and then back down. And, uh, you know, you have a procedure for, for dealing with that. But uh, what the co-pilots didn't recognise was, like the rest of us, it was going to happen. And he was eating his lunch at the time. <laughs> a
0: proper <laughs> a proper AT crew.
1: <laughs> oh absolutely uh he was eating his lunch um and then he was wearing his lunch um as, uh, as it was thrown about the uh, the flight day but yeah that that was that was quite unsettling but we did actually crack the the, the sound barrier uh there uh, for a short period um, oh, we were glad to you know, <laughs> well yeah um the only other time i've cracked the sound barrier was uh, my last flight in the air force i i flew the typhoon
0: oh fantastic
1: and, Uh, Yeah, Uh, actually, it was a great week. I I went the fastest and the slowest I've ever been in an aircraft. The first was with the Typhoon, and it was in one of their twin-seat trainers, and so I had an instructor pilot with me. And I remember, as we lined up on the numbers ready for departure, um, I thought, what am I doing here? You know, because uh, this is going to be quite interesting, and indeed it was. Uh, We accelerated down the the runway for a... um, Uh, what do they call it, Uh, high-performance departure and climb. And uh, he snaps the vertical. And I was just watching the altimeter go, as it was winding up. And uh, then the voice over the intercom was heard, which the uh, the female voice says, warning, transonic, which was just warning you from a tactical perspective, you're going to break the sound barrier. Even going vertically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and now, of course, you don't hear anything, hmm. but uh, from a tactical perspective, you need to be aware of that in case it gives away your presence. But anyway, we carried on up and we'd been cleared to 55,000 feet, with flight all 5x0. And uh, I was flying at this stage and the instructor said, right, as we pass 40,000, you need to start levelling off because otherwise we get a to bust height. So there we are. We levelled off. At flight or 550 at Mach 2 uh, with this clear blue sky over the North Sea. and
0: That's kind of curvature of the it, Earth altitude as well, isn't it, on a, on a clear day?
1: Yeah, you can. It, and it was starting to get a little bit darker up there um, uh, at that altitude. Um, but, you know, it's very undramatic, that. And then he took control, flipped us inverted. And, uh, uh, and we, we dived down to about 20,000 feet. And then he said, right, we're well, here we are at Mach 1. He said, do whatever aerobatics you like. <laughs> and it was just phenomenal because uh, and the G-suit that we had, which is effectively a full body G-suit, meant that we were pulling, well, more Gs than I care to think about now. And I didn't have any G-tolerance at that stage, having flown big aircraft for a while and i was talking to him as i'm talking to you now uh, phenomenal piece of kit. so yeah that that was a fun time and then later on that week i went to do a, a graduation up at rf shawbury and uh, i said well I'll, I'll go and do the graduation but send a helicopter a twin squirrel down got a field outside with instructor pilot because i'd like to fly a helicopter so i flew the helicopter at the Shawbury, ah, the which, will have, which
0: will have trumped yeah. the typhoon experience by, you know, imagining. Oh, well, absolutely.
1: <laughs> well, you, it was more of a challenge when, as we were approaching RF Shawbury, the instructor said, Right, we'll, we'll start to switch off some of the uh, computers now um, until you've got no computer assistance at all. Then I started to work a little bit harder. I have yeah. to say,
0: raw <laughs> raw helicopter flying in a modern well, the, the twin screw is not that modern, but yeah, without the stability systems in, always uh, yeah. is always interesting. We used to do the same in the Falklands. We used to have a, uh, you know, the, the F 3s down there, and we always used to invite them to come yeah. flying with us. And if they were doing, this was in the seeking. Which was incredibly stable. Yeah. You could you could teach it, you know you could yeah. teach your granny to hover it. To be honest, um, although I don't want to give away that, but it wasn't that difficult to hover. Uh, it was like a <laughs> giant block of flats. Uh, but if they were doing too well, we would just knock the stab, what we call the stab, the stabilization system out, yeah. uh, and, and then it gets a little bit lively. Uh, uh, just to just to yeah, make sure. And there was always we always used to make sure that the navigators left it in, to, so so they did incredibly well compared to the F three pilots. So as soon as the pilots got in, if we thought we were, thought we were getting it, we'd, the nav we sat behind us uh, watching his watching his, uh, his buddy, and we just knocked this stab out and, go, uh, oh, you're not doing oh, really well. I said, the, the navs can do better than this. Anyway. <laughs> well,
1: it's good just to rebalance things and egos, yeah. doesn't it? Oh, so you gotta,
0: often. You've got to rebalance if it's the fast jet, guys. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll move away from the Air Force in a moment, Peter, but it's really interesting, yeah. and there's, you've got some great stories. In fact, actually, my last flight in the Air Force was also uh, in a fast jet. I, I luckily had a friend... And I was at Lossy Mouth, and uh, I got a tornado. It's not strictly two, actually. My last, I call it my last flight, uh, but unfortunately, in the morning, I had to do a rotor tune a seeking. But I, well, I'm, I'm discarding that. I tell people my yeah, last flight yeah, was in a, I, t- I, yeah.
1: <laughs> I, I think yeah, the yeah, good skills there uh, yeah, too it was in a tornado,
0: yeah. which again was was a probably not the same experience as a, as a typhoon, but for a helicopter pilot, it, it, what took me by surprise was how quiet. The whole thing was obviously I was yeah. in, in the back seat, but, uh, yeah. it was just silent. And, uh, we demonstrated these, the party, apparently it's got one part. I mean, it's a bomber at the end of the day, but it's one party trick was to just let the speed, you just come back to idle and you let the speed wash right off to minimums. Uh, and then you push right through to, I think it's, you know, to afterburner to combat power, uh, and it, the acceleration on the, uh, on the tornado, I presume that was a GR1, um, I don't want to show my ignorance of uh, tornado types, but it was a pin you in the back of the seat moment. Uh, yeah. And yeah. my my friend who was flying said, just be careful when we reach. I can't remember what speed it was, but you, you need to pull 40 to 50 degrees nose up. Otherwise we will go supersonic, you know, uh, mm. which, was, which was interesting because I think, you know, it was, it was never really designed for that, um, that kind of that kind of action but it was good so one last thing on the ref so is there is there anything is there any one thing i mean i know it's up quite some time ago but is there any one thing particular that you miss about it or or do you miss a lot about it i don't know i was probably a leading question
1: well of course there's there's the rose tinted spectacles effect isn't there so um i i think when i look back i just really appreciate my time and the opportunities that i had and uh, yes, I could say I missed this, I missed that. But, you know, I, I, I think that that's futile because I can't go back. And also, I I probably don't remember the full context of the time and the frustrations and all the rest of it. Yeah. But uh, yeah. no, I I really enjoyed my time. And uh, I, I think I was very, very fortunate.
0: Yeah. Uh, it, it, and I I speak to a lot of people, obviously, are still involved in aviation so and particularly helicopters. So... We have, we're surrounded by ex-service pilots and you, I think you meet two different types of people actually you, you meet the people that have made the break and have gone uh, and then you meet some people who haven't really ever made the break uh, and mm. there's always that oh but back in the day you know and when we did this and when we did that uh, which I find sometimes a little bit frustrating particularly particularly from a management point of view is that you know? I, I you need True. to move on, and and it was you said it was a oh. fantastic experience, uh, but it's just an experience, and now you move on to the next one.
1: That's right, yeah. and I, I think that that's a good way of looking at life as well. You know, it, it's we could spend all of our time looking backwards, but it's better to to look forwards and what you can create and what you can go on to do.
0: Yeah, and that leads nicely in, into the book, actually, Peter. So leading from the jump seat As i say i've already admitted that i haven't quite finished it uh, my my homework i've not done That's a story of my life um <laughs> which is why which is i think when we before we start recording i, I got to flight attendant, you got to group captain uh, um, so <laughs> i should have been faster reading <laughs> could have worked harder i think the school report said <laughs> um what made, you, what made you write the book? Uh, is, there, is there anything in particular? Is there, is there another passion? I know, I know you talked about, I want to talk a little bit about your time with Simon as well, uh, just after this, but is mm-hmm. there something in particular that, you, that sparked, you know, because it, I've never written a book, so I, I I'd imagine it's, it's quite a big undertaking.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the book, the full title, "Leaning from the Jump Seat, How to Create Extraordinary Opportunities by Handing Over Control. And this is, well, it it draws from the the metaphor of a flight deck being the microcosm of of leadership. Uh, And we can see great leadership there and very poor leadership too. And uh, the the book opens with a story of when I found myself on the jump seat um, shortly after takeoff in a VC 10 at San Francisco with a newly qualified, newly certified captain in the left hand seat. And we were about 500 feet. We had an emergency. Um, and what I then chose to do in the next couple of seconds would dictate whether we all survive or not. And uh, I chose to do absolutely nothing because in that moment, I didn't need to lead. I needed to be a great follower. I needed to have the captain, Callum, feel that I had his back and that I entrusted him to get on and do what he needs to do. And to be honest, if I didn't entrust him to sort out the situation, I would have had no business signing him up As a fully qualified captain the day before. Um, So, this gave me the notion of lean from the jump seat because, you know, we all hand over control at some stage in our life. If we're a boss of a company, if we lead a team, or even as a parent, you know, our kids will grow up and leave home and start to lead their own lives. So, handing over control is inevitable. And lean from the jump seat is very much about, well, how do we lead in such a way that we prepare our people? to take forward those things that are really important to us once we've taken that step back. And it turns out that when you lead with that intention, it creates extraordinary opportunities in the moment, in the present, and equips your team to take on the greatest challenges as well as to do a better job in day-to-day business. So that was the the idea behind Jump Seat Leadership. But the book is just a container, really, for all the things that I've learned over the years with all the experiences that i have had and I, I just i've just been so fortunate in my life i think to have had these experiences i wanted to share not only those stories but the message behind the stories and what i've learned from them because then i hope that other people can put those ideas into practice and the the book is very much a how-to guide you know the end of each chapter there is how to we call it consider this section for you to consider it regardless of what stage you are in your life and career how to put those ideas in each chapter how to put them into practice
0: yeah now that, that is slightly different to a lot of other kind of leadership uh, coaching type books that i've read is that as, as peter you just described at, at the end of each chapter you've got uh, i think it, there's flying and then there's uh, let me get this straight i think you could you, you'll yeah, know this much are, better than me uh, sorry
1: uh, well uh, I'll, I'll take you through very quickly yeah. uh, it, it builds on the metaphor of, fly, uh, of of being a pilot, you know? There, there are four stages in life, really. There's um, learning to fly, there's flying, teaching others to fly, and then leading from the jump seat. So the first of those, um, learning to fly, is, is a metaphor for figuring out, you know, what's deeply important to you in life? What's really important? I'm not talking about your latest iPhone or, or car or whatever, but no. What are those things that are the non-negotiables, the things that will drive you forward, even in times of uncertainty or, or chaos? Because when you can latch onto those, then it, it helps to guide you as you, you face uncertain times. I mentioned earlier the, the Falklands War. You know, one of the things that came out of that for me that was, is still a non-negotiable for me is the notion of mutual respect. Mm -hmm. And so that's one driver that that guides me as I move forward. But then, you know, perhaps you've been to college or you've done an apprenticeship or whatever, you get into your job and you're doing really well in the job and you're flying. Now, if you're a pilot, you you might be literally flying. But, you know, if you're a computer programmer or or, uh, a gardener or whatever it happens to be, you're good at it and you're in flow. That's what I refer to as the flying stage. But then after a while, typically, you'll probably get promoted if you're really good at it, uh, what you do. And then all of a sudden, you've got this team of people to look after. And that's when you have the opportunity to teach others to fly. And that's the third stage of jump seat leadership, uh, where you pass on your expertise and lifting them up. I think that's that's an interesting
0: point in that one, Peter, to interrupt. Just people are promoted generally because they're good at the job that they were doing. And Exactly, and we see that a lot. Where you know, in, in in my business, where you know, if you're very good, you know, if you're a very able pilot, maybe you're a very able instructor. You quite often mm-hmm. are the person that is promoted, but it doesn't actually make you a good manager. Uh, and that's a very Absolutely difficult. Not. That's a very difficult transition. So, uh, sorry, I, I interrupted the flow, but I think no, that was no, one I, of the I, points I, that I picked up. So I think you made it in the book as yeah. well. Is that it's it's quite difficult that generally. We promote not just in aviation, but in all industry. We promote people that are very good at technical subjects, but we don't necessarily mm. promote people that are very good managers. But of course, sometimes Absolutely it's catch twenty two.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it a good interruption there, Chris, because this is an issue that I see in most companies, many companies I work with, you know, and it, it's it's our system really. You know, when you're at school. Um, often you identify things that you're good at. So perhaps you'll go on to college or university to specialise even more and become better at them. You know? uh, and then you get hired for that role. Let, let's just say computer programmer, for example. You get hired because you're skilled at computer programming. And then to your point, if you get really good at it in that job, you'll get promoted. And all of a sudden you're no longer doing the programming. You're looking after the people who are doing the programming. But we give folks very little training to make that transition. But here's the thing. We've been rewarded up to that point for knowing the answer. Yeah. Yeah. And so then we're thrust into this position uh, of managing a team where it's not about knowing the answer, it's about knowing the important questions to ask. Because if we're the one that has to know the answer all the time, we become the constriction in the pipe. And our team can only progress as fast as our own knowledge allows us to progress. But when we train, and this is part of jump seat leadership, when we train ourselves to lead when we don't know the answer, then we're no longer the constriction of the pipe. And instead, we're we're drawing on the collective genius of our team to figure out the solutions, to the challenges that we're facing. And we accelerate, our velocity of progress increases. And the reason that's so important is because then it equips us to lead in situations when we genuinely don't know the answer. In times of uncertainty, and heaven only knows we've had a couple of years of great uncertainty in most industries yeah. uh, around. So it equips us to lead better in those situations. So that's a, a major transition point, really, for for people to, to adopt jump-seat leadership.
0: Yeah. and. Uh... I was just I was just having a think there how that relates back to the flight deck and you can absolutely see how that fits in because on the flight deck yeah there's a captain that, you know and a multi crew aircraft I mean I came from a, my last few years was flying search and rescue with four crew when on an nimrod there yeah. were 13 crew uh, and and not everyone can see each other so there's no body language yeah. and it's a difficult thing to command it's a difficult thing to lead uh, particularly when you can't see each other uh, and that's true for, yeah. for helicopters as well slightly easier on on big transport aircraft but i can see how that fits in because the captain doesn't necessarily know everything um and and and, sh- and, and to be to be obvious to to be fair shouldn't really have to know everything because as you say you really are playing your team members so that you you're working on their knowledge yeah. i mean now most obviously most modern airlines are, are two to pilot you know the flight engineer has gone you had a navigator in the uh, have, have in the uh in the vc10 yeah. and the flight deck was it was a you know a, a busy little place but you can absolutely see that and it's something that i'm in my role uh in, in my in my full-time day job uh, when i'm not doing this is is something we always put across is that you're not expected to know everything, but you are expected to be able to manage your crew in a way that you come out with the best mm. outcome. And I think in, in terms of leadership, I, I sit there every day because I'm, I fly a desk most of the time. And I've been thrust into, uh, you know, a fairly senior leadership role with having come from being just a chief pilot, well, not just a chief pilot, but a chief pilot. And it's difficult. It, it is very difficult. And, and dealing with people is the hardest part of any, I think, of any management role.
1: Well, it is because um, people are comp- complex, not complicated. Complicated is like a computer program, you know, lines and lines and lines of code, like con- the control the, the services of a, an Airbus, you know, lines and lines and lines of code. It's complicated, but one line of code always follows the other. Leading people is complex. Because one action does not necessarily have the same reaction. It's not repeatable. So that is the definition of complexity. But here's the thing, you know, the the big danger when we're put into a a role where we're we're leading a team, um, our, our ego can come forward. Because we like to be the person who knows the answer. And that has got. No place in the team, it certainly doesn't have a place on the flight deck. And I recount the story in the book of the Tenerife disaster back yeah. in March 1977, where the KLM captain, Captain Van Jansen, uh Van Zanten, sorry, um, he was he had such a, a high role in that organization. He was the, the senior training captain who was literally the poster. Pilots appeared all the advertisements for KLM, Um, but it was because he didn't listen and confirm that they had clearance for takeoff when, in fact, they didn't have clearance. And he rolled down that runway in the fog and hit the Pan American jumbo. Just uh, despite despite being told that. that, Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, the the first officer um, and the flight engineer both made a tentative intervention but the cockpit gradients as we know it where the seniority of the captain was so great compared to the seniority of the other crew members they didn't have the um, the courage really to speak up now the only good thing that perhaps came out of that and you know we, we must remember 583 people lost their lives on that day. Perhaps one good thing that came out of that, one good legacy, was the advent of what's known as CRM these days, Crew Resource Management, where, um, and I remember being taught and practicing this in the Air Force, where the most junior flight net member can speak up if they perceive something has been missed or is wrong. And I, I remember as a, a boss of squad, a squadron, I commanded 101 squadron, I would often fly with some very junior pilots. And as I walked onto the flight deck and sat down, I turned to them and said, right, before we go anywhere, I want you to, to remember your job is to monitor what I'm doing and pick me up if you think I've made a mistake or I've missed something. That is your job. And of course, just by saying that, not only do you create an environment where hopefully you all stay safe, but also you're lifting up that other person. Yeah, you're absolutely. empowering them. And that too is a key element of jump seat leadership. It's about creating the space to lift others up. So when the time is right, they're empowered and able to take the lead.
0: Yeah, uh, it's it's so transferable. And I've done presentations as well towards to toward the NHS um, about mm. CRM, about threat and error management. And and it's, it's very relatable, particularly to the Air Force where there is a rank. Uh, because like yeah. it or not in in the medical world, there is, you know, there is a hierarchy, you know, there are doctors, there are Oops. consultants, there are registrars, there are junior doctors, there are nurses, and it goes on and on. So a little bit like the air force. And as you say, when you jump into an aircraft as a, as a squadron commander, you automatically have that rank. You are automatically the boss, um, you know, uh, and, and you're wearing a uniform that says that. And that makes, I think that makes it quite hard. I, I Go back to my days in the Air Force, certainly on Nimrods. And we had some dinosaurs who did not listen, who would not listen. Uh, and it's quite interesting. And I'd like to think now they're all gone. In, and certainly, you know, my civilian career, um, what's that now, 19 years. Yet back then, we used to see helicopter crews, you know, some helicopter captains, particularly uh, the old and bold from the North Sea who'd survived, you know, some fairly horrendous uh, uh weather and events and even accidents and uh, they were very much like that but that I th- I'm hoping mm. now that's gone and certainly certainly in what I understand well, it's gone but uh, in when I h- heart back to the NHS there it, it's sometimes very difficult and it's something I really enjoy and I've really enjoyed presenting but it's sometimes difficult to get that message through that this has to come right from the top and that's one of the first things well, we always yeah, said
1: so we all all have the opportunity to. Um, to see, you see, ego comes from one place, it comes from fear. Fear is triggered when we sense our life is in danger. But it's also triggered when we sense our livelihood status or reputation is under threat. And when fear is triggered for those reasons, it's not helpful, because it often shows up as ego. So, you know, The, the, the trick here is to, when we feel ego in ourselves or see it in others coming forward, to recognise it as a warning flag that we're being driven by fear. Now, the flip side, we always have a choice. The flip side is love. Now, when you mention the word love in a business context, people start to get a little bit jittery. Yeah, quite but, unusual to see you know, that
0: in the book until I read that chapter.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, but, you know, it's important what love looks like in business. It's not about hugging trees and each other all the time. It's about being connected to something greater than yourself. It's about having a stand for something rather than being afraid of something. It's about seeing the world as a place of possibility rather than a place of scarcity. It's about thinking of others rather than yourself. And when you see ego arise because your status or reputation or livelihood is under threat, when we recognize it as a warning flag, we have the opportunity to source ourselves from a place of love. And instead of ego, to lead with humble confidence. And humble confidence is about being absolutely resolute on where you're heading, you know, what your mission is or uh, your goal, your value, your vision. But having the humility to listen to others and get their input, still have confidence in your own ability, but being willing to listen to others. And I recount a story in the book about the greatest demonstration of humble confidence I had when I was the co-pilot on a VC-10 and we're faced with Crash landing the aircraft with 140 people on board because the left hand main undercarriage didn't come down. And the captain at the time turned to me and he said, Peter, I want you to do the crash landing. Now, he wasn't abdicating his responsibility, far from it. Uh, he was an experienced captain, but not on that type. I was more experienced on that type. I was at the top of my game. I was flying the Prime Minister, um, I was one of the Prime Minister's pilots at the time. And also, I just practiced crash landing in the simulator a couple of weeks beforehand. <laughs> so, you know, he set aside ego and led with humble confidence because he was connected to what's the bigger picture here? The bigger picture is we all get on the ground safely and walk away. And he deemed that the best way of achieving that was to give me control of the aeroplane and support me so as I could do the best possible job I could and for him to focus on, well, what happens when all the noise stops uh, when we're, we're down? you know, Then let's manage that situation. So that was humble confidence in action. So this is the thing. Even when we're not the most senior in the room, when we see egos arise, we can choose to step forward with humble confidence. Because just like ego can spread, it's infectious. Egos can you know, oh, yes. raise up other egos. Yeah so can humble confidence if someone shows the courage to leave from that place
0: yeah it's uh it, uh, it- you, you you mentioned uh, I think that was the one where was that the gear incident? I don't want to give too much away; those people won't read, want to read yeah. the book, But um, that was the gear incident, and and I also one of the, one of the other ones I think what, what which was slightly more amusing. Well, certainly from a pilot's point of view was the, the, I think the Jeffrey Howe incident, uh, which which resulted yeah. in some uh, broken crockery, fine china, uh, and crystal. Yeah, that's right.
1: Uh, and, and I uh, I went but...
0: I got I'm not no I'm going to give it a, I'm not I'm not going to say it because I went I got hook line and sinker into into that the way you wrote that and I thought oh well, I don't really like that and then of course it was the way you've written it which is very clever uh, and it wasn't actually what the captain did and standing back is is always the thing I and mean, when we teach people in the simulator quite often you know when there's an emergency is that the captain the natural reaction for a captain to say I'll take control but of course like in industry what you really need to do is stand back if you've got the confidence Absolutely. in the other person and <clears throat> and look at and look at the bigger picture because In aviation, as we know, you know, quite often if you've got your hands and feet on the controls, that's, well, certainly when I'm flying, that's like 90% of my capacity gone. So, um, but again, standing back is something that I've learned uh, as well, is that you just quite often when something happens, again, it's an aviation thing where there's an emergency, sit on your hands, you know, uh, I just wrote a little bit about 60 Seconds, there's one of the American crews, they literally start a stopwatch. So when it's all going wrong, not particularly in the air, but at any other stage in briefing, they, they get their iPhone and they put the timer on and they say and they start it and they sit there for 60 seconds and say nothing. And at the end of That's it, good. they've generally thought of something else. So yeah. all of I this like, hearts like back like, because we all have to make in business, we all have to make decisions, sometimes quite quickly. And it's really easy, yeah. like in the aircraft scenario, to rush in. And, and not trust that it person is. or not think about that other person that you've got that's yes. probably a subject matter expert. Uh, I mean, I'm asked on a, on a daily basis about things that I really have no idea about. But because of my title, people go, oh, well, we'll ask Chris. Because he will know yeah. that. And, of course, a lot of the time I don't. I, you know, I, it's impossible, yeah. as in anything in business, to know absolutely every subject. But I do know people that do. You know, and uh, and I think that's, well, that's, that's, that's then, the whole premise yeah, of some of the chapters. Sorry, Peter.
1: They're, they're by their own knowledge when yeah. you know they, they supposedly know all the answers. But just linking back to something you said there, Chris, which I think is really important. When uh, And yes, we can take the flight deck of an aircraft as the example, but this translates into business as well. When someone more junior than you is making a mistake or not getting it right, in that moment, we have the opportunity to either have it spiral down or have it spiral up. Spiral down looks like pricking their balloon of confidence and taking control. Spiraling up is doing the absolute, min- absolute minimum necessary to ensure that uh, you know you complete whatever it is successfully. So there is a story in the book called Four Red Lights. And uh, that's the story of being flying with a junior co-pilot into Gander, Newfoundland. And the four red lights um, refer actually to the PAPIs, the Precision Approach Indicators. And as listeners will know, uh, most large airfields, you've got these and they can either shine red or shine white. If they all shine red, you're too high above the glide slope on the approach. Too low if they're all red, you're way too low. Yeah. And if you've got two red and two white, you're good. You're on the, on the slope. And we're flying into to Gander and it started off fine. We were two red, two white, that was good. But then it went three red, one white. We were below the glide slope. So I called to the co pilot let's call him John. I said below the slope, and he should have put some power on just to regain the correct uh, approach path, but he didn't. So I let it continue, but then I could see it drifting into four reds. Now at that point, the aircraft was in danger of going into a regime beyond which I would not be able to safely recover. But even then, I didn't take control. I called out, low on the approach. I then nudged the throttles forward, calling out what I was doing, as I did so. And we very quickly regained the correct approach path, and we landed without any further incident. Now, the point there was that, yeah, there was a time when, um, I think it's a a Spock out of Star Trek quote, isn't it, where the needs of the many overcome the the needs of the one. Uh, And that was such a case. But I've laid out in the book some things to consider before we do take back control, uh, whether it's flying or in business generally. And one of the things is do the minimum absolutely necessary because if you prick that balloon of confidence in that individual, it can take months or even longer for them to regain where they were before that moment. Um, There is a great follow-on story to that in the book but I'll no, let you we, we won't do the whole book
0: <laughs> maybe it's a chapter <laughs> I haven't read maybe it's at the end well, <laughs> no it's, and, and taking control is again it, it fits both industry and aviation as you said and yeah. uh, quite difficult in aviation actually uh, something that we run up against the time is is sometimes it does take a lot more courage actually to take control um and and that's something that we see and we practice uh you know how far do you take it how far do you let somebody go before actually yeah. there's probably more damage and as you said in, in your star trek quote you know it's the, it's the needs of the many really in that situation and we've seen accidents um well i've certainly seen an accident since i've been a civilian pilot you know where during the subsequent debrief that I was involved in, and I won't go into too much detail, but the, the, the co-pilot said I was about to say something, and I think again yeah. in business, if you create the right atmosphere, then people who are—I don't, I don't even like the expression "your juniors," but you know, people that are in, in the business with you will be more happy to speak up, and that that goes back to CRM, that goes yeah. back to all the stuff that we just talked about. Yeah. yeah. So in industry, Peter, what? what has particularly since you've been in around industry and uh, your time with Simon is there any one thing that you've seen that that's inspired you that you know along the, along this theme I suppose um, in business
1: um, absolutely and again I'll draw from the book because it's such a great example it, it's it's there's been a lot of companies their their culture and the way they lead have inspired me but Um, Most recently, it was spending time and getting to know Nick Bainton. And uh, Nick, uh, until fairly recently, was CEO of ASOS, the global, based in the UK, but global um, fashion uh, and jewellery retailer. And uh, their operation is absolutely phenomenal. You know, they've got something like over 850 brands, um, The numbers now, 400,000 different product lines. You know, when something is photographed in their studios in the morning to go on their website, it's on their website in the afternoon, Mm -hmm. available in all sizes and available to be shipped to 200 territories around the world. The operation is almost like a military operation. It needs that discipline. And yet when you go around their headquarters in London you wouldn't think it would be that discipline at all. The average age of the 4,000 people they have employed, the average age is just 27 years old.
0: That's amazing.
1: That's the average. Yeah. And when you walk around their headquarters, you know people are sitting on, in groups on the floor with diagrams and sketches. Of, there, there's fashion, there's clothes teeming out of every um, drawer and cupboard. It looks chaotic, but no, it has military precision. And that is because... When I look at ASOS and Nick baton he encouraged jump-seek leadership. He was all about lifting people up for them to bring who they truly are to the workspace and uh, make that contribution uh, that only they could make and delegating down to the lowest possible level. And he he absolutely walks the, the talk and uh, he empowers people and lifts them up. And so ASOS is really uh, a fantastic organization the way it's organized. So, yeah, that, that's why they, they take up the best part of a chapter in, in the book. I think that's um, the chapter I've three, just started. Uh, <laughs> all right, chapter 12, I think it is. Oh, yeah. There we go. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah that, I would love to. I would have loved, I suppose, too late for me now, but uh, I would love to have worked in one of these organizations because it's the way it's changed, the way the whole whole business has changed. And even, you know, even even in a short period of time, these these uh, online companies, the, the e-commerce companies, the, the logistics and the whole operation is just incredible. But as you say, then to, to have that atmosphere in the headquarters where where you know the, it's a young headquarters to start off with mm. it's just amazing it's phenomenal to watch i mean i suppose I, I don't know what how amazon compares probably a different completely a different leadership style um but
1: possibly i haven't looked into amazon but yeah, yeah. but you look at these
0: they're just truly truly amazing i mean you know i needed a i needed a, a rubber grommet for my aircraft uh which i'm going down <laughs> to see tomorrow So I'm s i haven't said hello to it for, for a couple of months and uh you know, I went on Amazon last night and ordered. You know, it was it, it, it's wrong, but it was cheaper to order a box of a hundred of different sizes than it was to to find one. And it arrived. You know, as we were talking just before we came on. You know, the, the DPD driver, the Amazon driver, arrived. You know, this afternoon, and the logistics behind that are yeah. just are just mind boggling.
1: Well, they are the uh, mind-boggling. Uh, of course, there are other issues that, that come up with that in terms of um, uh, what, what leadership style drives that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that, that, that's perhaps another conversation. But Yeah, well, well I suppose uh, that leads on,
0: that was my, my other question. Is there anything that you've seen, and obviously we don't want to name, we don't want to get sued or <laughs> I, don't this, I don't want my podcast to end prematurely. But is there anything you've seen without naming names? You know that that's, that I, I think I wrote yeah. truly horrifies you. I mean, I, I certainly have. But uh, is there anything of note? Well,
1: I, I think uh, uh, again I mentioned this in the book. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, there was a company, very, very, very large company with lots of divisions, one largest in the world, and I, I was doing running a workshop for their leadership team, and. Uh, The company was in trouble, had been for some years, and the process I was taking them through would have opened up an opportunity for them to start turning it around. But there was so much ego in the room. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, Chris. Ego, and it, it came from fear. But instead of working together, they were pissing themselves against one another. And ego took the fall. The only person who didn't have ego, but sadly didn't have humble confidence either, was the CEO. He could have stepped in and raised the bar so they're working together in service of something greater than themselves. But he chose not to. He's no longer the CEO and the company is still not doing well. But it, it was a, a shocking example of how, well, it was a missed opportunity.
0: Yeah, and that's the sad no. thing, isn't it? You, you know, it it, particularly for you, if you've been brought in to advise and and to guide, and then people still won't listen. That that's that's really sad. And uh, well, again, something something that to... happens quite a bit. Yeah,
1: unfortunately, it, it does. You know, we we always have a choice. We can choose to be driven by fear, or we can be we can choose to be driven by the love for something. Yeah. Uh, and there's some, and great, there's some great other
0: examples in the book of that, uh, I must say.
1: There are indeed, yeah.
0: Great. Um, one of the things uh, that I was going to ask you about is succession, because leading from the jump seat obviously leads into the position where you need somebody to take over. And something yeah. that I've seen is that businesses are very happy why everything's going really well with those people that are in place, and then a key figure yeah. leaves. or or decides to leave and there is no understudy. Is that something that that you've seen? I I see succession as really important. I see it as part of the leadership skills and, and trying to get, making sure that, you know, that there is somebody ready and waiting you know, to step—I mm. suppose—not to step into your shoes, because I think you, you've described that in the book as well, where you you took on a different a different persona because you, you know you wanted yeah, because important. of the the person. It's a natural thing to do that the person before. Yeah. And again, I've seen that lots of times where people try and be the manager that was, uh, and and it's not them. Mm. But succession is—do you see that as, uh, you know, a very important part of business?
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, it goes to the essence of what leading from the jump seat is all about. But I'd put it this way. you know, If you are at work working on something that you believe in, something that's really important to you, why wouldn't you want it to continue after you've taken a step back? Why would you want to create a situation where when you've done your 20, 30 years or whatever it happens to be, it doesn't continue. It just evaporates. And that's what happens if... You don't lift others up if you don't prepare others to carry forward those things that are deeply important to you. I, I think, you know, going back to our Air Force days, we perhaps took this for granted. But every two and a half years, squadron commanders would change. Yeah. And uh, we would have a system with, with flight commanders, if you like, middle management and so on and so forth, such that no one was indispensable. And the, the ethos, the mission... It continued, regardless of whether you ultimately were there or not. And that gave the organization great resilience. Now, of course, it came from um, the the slightly dark side of in combat, you lose people. Mm. And if you lose a key figure, you can't just stop. You've got to be able to continue. Um, that's well, why the, <laughs> the although oh, it, did,
0: it did have its uh, I suppose it did have its downfalls that a lot of people moved on before all their mistakes could be uncovered um, <laughs> that was certainly sometimes <laughs> my experience in the Air Force it's that...
1: true, I'm, I'm running hard Chris, so I'm continuing to run hard and hopefully won't we'll catch up no. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, I think it's, at least it forced um, the organisation to to look at well, who's next? Who's next? Let's do some succession planning. And that um, usually is an afterthought in many organisations. Yeah, which seems ridiculous, actually. Why why would you want everything you've worked on for so long um just be at risk because you haven't equipped people? It sometimes becomes in, in
0: smaller businesses I've seen a lot, and, and I was guilty of this when I ran my own business, it becomes your baby. Uh, and, and and that's that's yeah. that's quite dangerous. And I, I I see it now where people should have retired, uh, and are still ha- clinging on in there, uh, because it becomes, yeah. well, it comes it comes your everything. You know, it does literally become like a child to you, uh, and and that's 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 quite dangerous. Um, and quite often, it quite is. often, the, these businesses fade away because of it.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's another form of ego, uh, I think. Which I don't make you or anybody else wrong for a of that but it, it, it's a warning sign it, even now you know everything that we're developing um from the book the the training courses that we're, we're developing um part of the plan is not to make it absolutely dependent on me yeah you know um so obviously i'm the author i'm the face of the book but if the objective as it is to share these ideas with as many people as possible then it, it has to be in a form that isn't ultimately dependent on me being there. Yeah, so that's a brilliant and
0: Peter it's been really really interesting uh, and and I genuinely have I'm not blowing smoke uh, uh, from anywhere I really have enjoyed the book so far it's it's a very practical a leadership book and I think it has a lot of value for any well for anybody uh, you know not just managers. Um you mentioned uh, I think it was towards the end of the book or it may have been in the preface that people everyone is capable of achieving something extraordinary mm. do you have is there a, is there just just to just to finish off I, I want to finish off on a we've talked about we've talked sometimes a little bit negatively about, about business but of course there are some we've talked about ASOS which is incredible is there? Yeah. Is there one one thing that you can think of where you, you see someone doing something extraordinary it doesn't have to be in business it could be anything
1: mm. well uh, I'm going to take this right back to when I was in my early teens. And I got to know two remarkable people, Muriel and Frank. Uh, They were married. And I got to know them because my mother helped to look after them. Muriel, she'd caught polio when she was 16 years old. She was going to be an Olympic swimmer, but she'd um, become bedridden paraplegic for several decades. And her husband, Frank, had been a Royal Marine Commander during the Second World War. And because of conditions he was exposed to, he had difficulty walking. But these people were the two most remarkable people that I had the privilege to know when I was growing up. Because their determination to carry carry on moving forward with their lives, to live as normal a life as possible, the joy that they brought to other people's lives was disproportionate compared to, you know, what they had around them and uh, their their physical ability. And so here's the thing, you know, we all have the opportunity to be a pebble in the pond. By that, I mean, what we say and what we do, uh, the smallest actions can have such recurring implications and positive ripples for others. And we never know how far those ripples go. And so at the end of the day, I think most of us, we want to spend our lives the way that is somehow significant. We make a difference. And what I say is, if you want to be significant, think small. It's those small actions, those moments, one-to-one interactions you have with people on a daily basis that can be that pebble in the pond. And that's the difference that we can make. So be the pebble in the pond.
0: I really like that. Uh, that's, that, that is true. And, it, and it's easy. Uh, our, bu- our lives are all so busy. You know, we're all doing this technology thing. You know, we're constantly attached yes. to screens, attached to f- phones. And, and, and that, that I really like the idea that just, you know, one small thing each day. Uh, my poetry. wife always says to me, I should write down three th- good things that I've done that day when I go to bed. Apparently, that's a, that's, a, that's a good coaching uh, skill. I, I sometimes struggle with that. <laughs> being in charge of, being a, not in charge of, that's the wrong expression, but being responsible for, for around about 80 pilots, it's sometimes uh, uh, <laughs> a little bit of a struggle yeah. to think of that. But it, but it's true, and, and, and if you yes. can do it. And, and I think over the last two years, we've seen loads lots of examples of that. Uh, not everyone can be the CEO of ASOS, but everyone can do that that small thing that you just mentioned.
1: It is, and let's just put a finger on that, which is a small thing can look like just pausing and checking in with someone as you pass them in the corridor. Yeah, you know, how's things at home? Are your kids all right? I heard your mother wasn't well. Is she doing all right? And the more senior we are, the greater that impact has, because people know that the only finite resource that any of us have is time. Yeah. And when we choose to spend a few moments to be curious about someone else. It means more than any other action that we could take in that time. So yeah, be curious and it only takes a few moments and we can transform somebody, transform someone's outlook on their day.
0: Brilliant, thanks Peter. So what comes next? Another book? Well, I think you mentioned training courses.
1: Yeah, well, we're working hard at the moment to produce a um, uh, a training course, of which uh, will now enable jump seat leadership to be spread across a company at scale without complete dependency on me. So that's fun. There'll be uh, a facilitator, a companion guide to that. And also we're working on uh, a Consider This Book, which um, will be an expansion of the, the ideas at the end of most of the chapters in the, the current book to help people put into practice and embed the ideas of jump seat leadership in their everyday lives and uh, their workplace. So yeah, quite a few things on over the next uh, few weeks.
0: Good, and, and where can where can you get the book? I was very lucky to have been sent one, but thank you very much, but- uh, Oh, we- you're
1: welcome. Um- so it's available on amazon um, usual places bookstores yep, sure. it's available in hardback uh, paperback ebook uh, and also audiobook so you we'll should put be able some to find links, it. we'll
0: put some links in the show notes as well obviously to to, yes, so to the book my very last question i ask everyone this uh, and you can answer this in any which way you'd like and i'm sure it'll be your inter- your answer will be very interesting is what do you think the world will look like in five years' time, and that can it can mm. be anything. I, I don't I don't need some deep philosophical answer unless you want to give one.
1: <laughs> um, hmm. Well, of course, it, it depends where we choose to look, what area life. But let, let's look at a business perspective, and I, I think that the companies in the future that are going to thrive are those that aren't so much focused about pay and benefits, but are focused on truly caring for their people. Because here's the thing, when we care for people, it gives them a sense of belonging. And when people feel that they belong to a team or an organisation, then they choose to step up and take responsibility and contribute more. So if you want your organisation, your team to thrive, care for your people yeah, and have them feel that they belong
0: great thanks peter it's been absolutely fascinating and i think we've run way over probably what we originally were going to but it's i've really really enjoyed it and i hope everyone else does and it's been my pleasure and uh, i'd love to speak to you again soon maybe maybe once uh, uh once the next next uh, peter docker book is out we'll, we'll speak again <laughs>
1: Excellent. Well, it's been a delight, Chris. Thank you so much for your questions. Uh, I've enjoyed talking to you.
0: Thanks to Peter for what I'm sure you will agree has been a fascinating insight, not only into Peter's career, but also how the skills learned in aviation are so transferable to other walks of life, including business. Check out the show notes to find Peter's website and also a link to where you can buy his latest book. I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I have. Please visit the Busy Aviation website at www.busyaviation.co.uk to read or listen to more aviation business articles and podcasts. Take a moment to sign up to our newsletter for all the latest news, views and reviews. And if you run an aviation business and would like to appear on this podcast, please drop me a line using the contact form on the website. Take care and fly safe.